Thank you, our Father, that in Genesis you reveal yourself to us as Creator and Lord. Thank you for the promise of a Saviour whose heel will be struck as he crushes the head of sin's curse. Thank you for the promise that you make to us through Abraham and in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us to know your great love and your concern for your people Israel, to see your mighty hand in the redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and to find confidence and hope in the God who keeps his promises through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Reading Exodus is like picking up a story partway through. And it's a story that starts in Genesis with creation and ends in Deuteronomy with God's people on the borders of the Promised Land. And even though we know how the story ends, we understand Exodus best when we read it in the light of what's come before. Well, that's how Moses writes it. Indeed, the genealogy in the first four verses of Exodus is simply a, a repeat of a genealogy in Genesis. One looking back from Egypt and the other looking forward to Egypt. Exodus is clearly a continuation of a story already begun. And the story begun in Genesis is that of a good God creating a good world. A world, however, that's been broken and marred by Adam and Eve's proud and foolish rejection of God's good rule. And in response to this, God in grace makes a few promises. And one of those promises was to Abraham. And the promise is that through Abraham's family, God would restore the world and remove the curse of sin. And his covenant or promise with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 is as follows. Firstly, he promised that he would make Israel a great nation. Secondly, he promised that Israel would be a blessing to the other nations. And thirdly, God said that he would give to Abraham's descendants a promised land, an everlasting possession. And the rest of Genesis is mainly a description of how God keeps his word and begins to deliver on these promises. Of course, when God made his covenant with Abraham, things didn't look too promising at all. If you're going to start a great nation, then Abraham and Sarah don't seem to be the obvious choice. That God should choose to make a barren and elderly couple the beginning of a great nation, therefore, is a clear testimony to the understanding that Israel's greatness well, it can only happen by God's faithfulness and grace. And so by the time we get to the end of Genesis, well, God has given Abraham 12 sons and a large company of descendants. And though they're not yet in the promised land, they have found what seems like comfortable refuge in Egypt. But with the death of Joseph and a new pharaoh on the throne, well, that's all about to change. So what's to become of God's promise? But where is the great nation of Israel? Verse 5 tells us that 70 descendants of Jacob went into Egypt. Now that's a lot of descendants. 
but it's hardly yet a great nation. But look at verse 7. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, they increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land is full of them. And in the creation account, God's clear purpose is that, is that Adam and Eve would be fruitful, that they would increase in number. But they failed then to fulfil that mandate because of sin. And what we see God doing now is that he is fulfilling his purposes and indeed his promise. He promised Abraham that he would make his descendants into a great nation. And here it's happening. That God is faithful to his promises. That God does keep his covenant. But there's still a problem. You see, Israel's not a blessing to anyone yet, except maybe Egypt. And that's only because they're slaves and increasingly strangers in a strange land. This is certainly not the land that God promised them. And just as humanity rebelled against God's purposes in Genesis, so too again we find Pharaoh rebelling against fruitful Israel. Have a look at verse 9. Look, Pharaoh said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies. They'll fight against us and leave the country. So God wants Israel to be fruitful, but Pharaoh certainly doesn't. So he oppresses Israel. But the more he pushes against the purposes of God, well, the worse things get. Have a look from verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Now Pharaoh was a bit smarter. He would have learned early not to dread Israel, but to dread the Lord their God. But he didn't. Instead, he pushed further in oppressing Israel. He pushed further in opposing God. He even tried to recruit the Hebrew midwives as murderous accomplices. But they at least were smart enough to fear God rather than Pharaoh. And what was the result? Well, God made the Hebrew women strong and he blessed the midwives for their faithfulness. Have a look from verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Well, by this time, Pharaoh is desperate enough to recruit all of Egypt into his murderous plans. The whole nation now is to throw every Hebrew baby boy into the Nile. Now, the irony of that is that Pharaoh's plan for evil, well, it's turned upside down by God. The very act of placing Moses into the Nile, well, it's brought life for Israel and not death. And because life should come to Moses by the hand of Pharaoh's daughter and at the breast of Moses' mother, well, that makes it even more ironic. But still, Israel has a problem. They may be great in number, but they're still in slavery. And they're far from being a great nation in the promised land. 
And as for Moses, well, his life's been spared, but he's clearly ambivalent about being a Hebrew in the house of Egypt. He wants to champion his people, so he kills an Egyptian oppressor, thinking that no one would notice. Well, not only did they notice, they're rather dismissive of any suggestion that Moses might be a saviour for his people. Have a look from chapter 2, verse 14. The man said to Moses, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. Now it seems pretty clear at this point that if Israel is going to have a saviour, well it's not likely to be Moses. Moses is murderous, he's deceitful, he's fearful, he's hardly the leader that you would want to take a nation out of slavery across the wilderness and into the promised land. But it's worth pausing for a moment to reflect. I mean, God did keep his promise to make Abraham fruitful, and that not because of his youth and virility, but in his old age and his weariness. And God did keep his promise to make Israel fruitful, and that not because they're flourishing in Egypt, but in spite of their slavery and their oppression. So perhaps God is going to keep his promise to deliver Israel and take them into the promised land. Perhaps he will use Moses to accomplish his purposes. It's not like he hasn't chosen the most unlikely people and circumstance in the past. He has. Now we know that what God's about to do with Moses. We know the story well. But there is nothing in chapter 2 to suggest that Moses is in any way a heroic saviour. Clearly he is not. In fact, Moses flees to Midian to get away from Pharaoh. He is kind to some Midianite shepherds and he ends up marrying, well not a Hebrew girl, but a Midianite's daughter. Nothing here to suggest that this is the continuation of a Hebrew dynasty, a great nation that will overcome Pharaoh and march triumphantly out of Egypt. It's just not there. Indeed, Moses is in such despair that he names his first son Gershom. Imagine how Gershom must have felt. Because as he says in verse 22, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. And even though the old Pharaoh dies, well, things don't get any better for the Israelites in Egypt. In fact, things are so bad that we read in verse 23, chapter 2. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out. And their cry for help, because of their slavery, well, it went up to God. And though that sounds really bad, it's actually the best thing that Israel could have done. Crying out to God for help is never in vain and it's never silly. It's wise because it's humble and God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And God's promise 
is to rescue his people, to make them great, to bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them, and to bring them into a promised land to live under his kingship and rule. So asking God to do what he promised, therefore, well, it makes perfect sense. And so it comes as no surprise that we read from verse 24, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And he's concerned because he's the God who has chosen to love his people. He's the God of the covenant who keeps his promise to his people and fulfills his word. So chapter 2 ends, and when it does, two things are clear. Firstly, God will keep his promise. And secondly, a massive confrontation is shaping up between God and Pharaoh. A confrontation between the Lord God and what was at the time the most powerful nation and human authority in the world. Now in the past, God has judged the wickedness of the human heart by the flood. He judged the pride of the human heart at the Tower of Babel. And now he's about to judge the heart of Pharaoh, a heart hardened against God. Now of course it seems futile and perhaps even laughable to think that Pharaoh could stop God's hand, prevent him from being faithful to his covenant. God's sovereignty and his faithfulness makes his purposes omnipotent and his promises immutable. And that's a truth that we see played out over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And it's a truth that Peter declares in his sermon at Pentecost. Peter says this, he says, This man Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death. You nailed him to a cross. But God, well, he raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The purposes of God cannot be thwarted by the will of man. For what God purposes, he accomplishes. And what he promises, he fulfills. The God of the covenant, both new and old, is the God who keeps his word. And though the, and though the faithfulness of our covenant-keeping God is abundantly evident in Exodus, it's most clearly seen in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For as the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians, the promise of God was spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And Paul's point is that the seed of Abraham was not primarily about many sons. It's about one son. And that son is Jesus, who is the Christ. The promises that God makes to Abraham are all about Jesus. The promise that God would make his people a great nation well, that's fulfilled in Jesus. For in Christ Jesus, we are a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. 
We are God's special possession, and there are millions and millions and millions of us. We are not alone. The promise that God would bless us and make us a blessing to the whole world, well, that's also fulfilled in Jesus. For the mystery of the Gospel is that we, the Gentiles, together with Israel, we're members together of one body, we're sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And God's intention is that through the Church, His manifold wisdom will be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplishes in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's church, the likes of you and I, we're on display for the world. And we bring glory to God, not by looking good, but by doing good. We're bearers of the good news of the Gospel. And we bless because we have been blessed. And God's commitment to give his people a promised inheritance, well, that's also fulfilled in Jesus. For in Christ Jesus, God's kingdom has come and will reach its culmination when he returns in glory. And at that time, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven from God. And God's dwelling place will be among his people. And he'll dwell with us. We'll be his people, and God himself will be with us, and he shall be our God. And the promise of God to us is this. In Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptised into Christ, you've clothed yourself with Christ. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are an heir according to the promise. Brothers and sisters, I don't think it gets any better than that. In Christ Jesus, we're heir to the promises that God made. With all of God's people, we are heirs of Abraham. We belong to a great nation and we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So let's throw off everything that hinders us, any sin that might entangle us. Let's set our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. With all of God's people we have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus because God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So let's live our lives worthy of the calling which we have received and be completely humble and gentle with one another, bearing with one another in love. And with all of God's people, well, we have an inheritance. We have a promise guaranteed to us until the redemption of we who are God's possession. And so like Abraham, Let's not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God. Instead, let's be strengthened in our faith and give glory to God, fully persuaded that God has power to do what he has promised. For all the promises of God, they find their yes in Christ Jesus.
And that's why it is through him that we utter our Amen to God for his glory. <laughs>